0: That's a great phrase. <laughs> Gangsters should use it more. Instead of like sleeping with yeah. your face like, we're going to take you for a nice dirt Hey, we're dirt taking you nap. for a dirt nap. Sounds yeah. great. You know what? I've been tired. Yeah. <laughs> been busy lately. Fucking hell. Uh, all right. Are you ready? Because this is going to get intense. I'm ready, dude. Hit me. Are you tired? Overstressed? Underspirited? Suffering from acute lust pers- And don't know what to watch? Or what to think after you've watched it? Well, try full cast and crew a podcast where Jason and Chris pre-digest any questions you might have, delivering them back to you in one convenient economy-sized data dump. You won't believe all the benefits of listening, so I won't bother listing them. cast and Crew, the only podcast you'll ever need, if you never need any
1: more. Well, Chris, we have a lot to do today. We're going to be talking about Brazil, so I'll just jump right into my description. Brazil, officially the Federative Republic of Brazil, is the largest country in both South America and Latin America. I think I might have uh, watched the wrong thing. Well, I thought it was strange that you wanted to do a country and not a movie, but I read the UNESCO monograph on the founding of the nation, so I'm prepared to go really deep into the history of Brazil. Is that not what we're... Uh, you know what? I'll pick it up as we go along. Okay. I'm pretty familiar with the other BRIC countries. Okay. Well, Brazil, as you know, Chris, borders every South American country except Chile and Ecuador. Just kidding. Okay. No, we are here to talk about Terry Gilliam's 1985 film, Brazil, which has been called an Orwellian retrofuturist fantasy, a political cartoon writ large, a science fiction masterpiece. And also, not at all science fiction, more like a documentary, (laughs) a treatise on the unthinking rigidity of middle management bureaucracy, a selfish landmark and memento of a life gone terribly wrong, a Viking musical, like lifting the top off Terry Gilliam's skull and looking inside, and finally, like Franz Kafka meets Walter Mitty. I like that last one. That one came from Terry Gilliam himself. (laughs) I should have known. So, Terry Gilliam's Brazil... Had you seen it before?
0: Were you familiar with this particular? Uh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, I don't want to dominate the emotional space that Brazil occupies through
0: sheer importance to my life, so I'm trying to let you go first. I would love to because I love this movie. Like all right-thinking, you people. had seen it before. I had seen Please, I think I'd seen it. Please, Chris, maybe twice all the way through and also pieces here and there. I came to it when I did first see it because I was a Monty Python fan as a kid. I still am again, actually. I started watching again and realizing this still slays me like nothing else. For listeners who don't know, Terry Gilliam was the sixth Python, the only American among the group, and the one who would make the cartoon interstitials throughout episodes of Monty Python's Flying Circus what? Uh, then transitioned into becoming a director. Those cartoons for me are so—as a kid, I didn't love them. I, in fact, I was I was a little bit put off by them. But I grew to appreciate and love the obvious hand the Brechtian alienation of seeing, wow. seeing the way that it Brechtian worked. Brechtian
1: alienation.
0: The alienation effect in Brechtian stuff is when you see— the mechanism for the thing being made in front of you. So his plays, the lights would—you wouldn't try to hide them. You wouldn't have an illusion. You wanted to be very okay. conscious of the production was being presented. you. Okay. With these cartoons, were cut out, not quite as smooth as a Disney thing. You were just always very conscious of the fact that these are physical pieces of paper being moved around on a stop motion thing, which I grew to really appreciate, especially because it had the strangeness of being pictures taken from all over the place, just sort of jumbled together. So I came to see this movie just knowing that. Uh, I think when I first saw it, I was more I was more. blown away by how strange it was, subsequent viewings, uh, it deepened, and it deepened even more seeing it again, because like you said, it's starting to verge more and more on documentary. (laughs) You also can see that, like Blade Runner, the effects that it had on science fiction that has come after it is... It's sort of mind-blowing to think, how could things have existed without this? Because it is it has been so influential and so copied. Like the collage elements of his cartoons, you can also see the influences of the things that came before. But Terry Gilliam, like there's something so particular about him and the way he digests everything and spits them out. You can recognize the pieces, and yet it is inescapably his and... Um, I could also go on and on, so. (laughs) Well, I'm sure we both will.
1: Interestingly enough, you mentioned 1984. The working title that Gilliam had was 1984 and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Gilliam wanted to call it 1984 and a half, although he then, in a classic bit of (laughs) Gilliania, Gilliamania, 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 he then also admitted he'd never read 1984 or seen (laughs) any film adaptations of it, which I thought was great. (laughs) Let's just play a little bit of the theme to Brazil because I think that's where I want to start. That's a little of the theme from Brazil, which is based on a song by Brazilian musician Ari Barroso, re-recorded in 1984 by Jeff Muldauer, folk artist, and Michael Kamen, who did the other original music for the film. And I wanted to start there just in a more broader discussion of the film, because it occurs to me, I couldn't think of any, if I would really done my homework, I should have thought this through, but maybe we'll let the listeners answer these questions yes. for us, because otherwise, what the hell do they really have to do? <laughs> I'm trying to think of another movie where the title has really nothing to do with the movie itself Mm -hmm. and everything to do with the movie. The song is used and Gilliam and again, in another bit of great Gilliamania tells this story in a bunch of places where he says, I think this is true. I think this happened. If it's not, I've just been telling the story for so long that I finally decided it's true that he was doing something Python related on a beach In England that was covered in coal dust because of the manufacturing. And he had an image of a lonely man sitting on the beach, listening to this kind of music as an escape. And that was the starting point for the movie. The song and the title, of course, don't have anything to do with the subject matter of the film, other than the whimsical escapism that because of the film is laden with this, with the doom that really befalls our protagonist in the end. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of other films like that, where the title doesn't have anything to do with the movie. And I couldn't think of any. So I'm not putting you on the spot to think of any either. I'm just saying that was a starting point. For me, this movie, I saw this movie, a York Square cinema on York Street in New Haven, Connecticut in 1986, I want to say. Movie came out in 1985. Uh, I don't believe the United States release occurred until after the epic battle for Brazil, which we'll talk right. about subsequent to our addressing of the movie. But there was a big fight over the US release of the movie between Gilliam and the studio. And do you remember where you were the first time you saw certain movies? Like, do you remember the movie theater, where you were sitting? Do you remember details like that? Are there movies that you could remember?
0: Yeah, like um, Manuel de Oliveira. I don't, I think he's. Portuguese by birth, but identifies as French or Mm -hmm. vice versa. Film Forum in like 2002 saw this movie I'm Going Home. One of the things that I remember about it is having no idea what it was, having a couple hours to kill in the neighborhood and being blown away by Mm -hmm. it. And I think it was that element of surprise that was a big part of seeing that. Yeah.
1: This is maybe the first movie I can remember having that experience with because in 1986, I would have been 17 years old. And I remember going by myself to York Square Cinema in the evening, uh, going in in the daytime, leaving in the evening, because the movie is two hours and 23 minutes long in Terry Gilliam's preferred cut. And interestingly, like there's other movies, I can remember where I was sitting in the theater. Another Terry Gilliam movie, Fisher King is a movie I can remember where I was and when I saw it. I've never seen uh-huh. it since. Uh-huh. I saw that in college. And I remember the side of the theater that I was sitting in and what seat I was sitting in, because that movie... I had a profound effect with that movie as well, but I've never seen it since, and I have no idea if it holds up. This movie, interestingly, or uninterestingly, you be the judge, <laughs> I don't remember where I was sitting because York Square Cinema is a very tiny theater that had only two screens, uh-huh. but what I remember is walking out of the theater. I remember that in microscopic detail, leaving the small lobby, opening the glass and silver metal door to the street and walking out into, you know, in downtown New Haven on New York Street is one of the more populous parts of downtown New Haven. You're surrounded by Yale University. There are students coming and going. There's There are signs, and people are getting pizza and going to Toad's Place around the corner. There's a parking lot in the middle. There's cars driving by. And I remember the sensation of re-entering the world after being in this world of this movie, which is such an engrossing, enveloping world unique to itself. Now, of course, the overriding connection that I think I had was the romanticism of this Hmm. and that doomed romanticism, which I think is a very 16, 17-year-old thing to feel. And that's probably why I was most blown away. But Gilliam also says that, you know, for a lot of people, the movie encapsulated everything they thought and felt about the way the world worked and hadn't seen manifest on a screen in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think I had that experience too, because when you're 16, 17 years old and the cogs of life and machinery and, you know, I mean, my God, not as if I was being ground as butterfly wings in the grist mill of, you know, of some corporate monstrosity, but but that's what I felt. I was so blown away by it. I was. I had no reference point for it other than, like you said, even at that age being a Monty Python fan, yeah. a fan of absurdism and all of these other things. And, and I've always loved the movie since. I've seen it many times since then. Hadn't seen it in a few years. It was great to sit down and watch it again. And just like you said, appreciate it all the more for just how well made it is, yeah. how, how it's probably the best Terry Gilliam movie um, I think it's the most complete realization that he ever managed on screen um, I know people will be big fans of many other Terry Gilliam movies because there's so many and they're so varied and so different from each other um, but for me this is the purest distillation of Terry Gilliam's worldview and I love all the different aspects mashed up into one where you have the science fiction parts and you have the the 20s kind of noir parts and the 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 romance the 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 brutal unpulled punches of what society can do the unthinking rigidity of middle management bureaucracy. I mean, I can't say any better than that. Yeah.
0: But at the same time, the character of Lowry is not simple. No. Often that feeling of, I'm just trying to get by and this world won't let me. And somebody stuck in a society that is indifferent, there's something seductive by how easy that can be. Mm-hmm. And I've read a lot of science fiction where they can easily become very passive and static. And he simply is not. When watching it this time, there were things, one, Jonathan Price's performance, I did not realize Incredible. how- fantastic he was and how much he looks like Richard E. Grant. And the fact that- <laughs> He doesn't look like Richard E. Grant. I was thinking like, oh, I would love to see Richard the two E. Grant of them, would have been great in this movie too. The, to see the two of them as brothers. But also like the story moves. The look is so distinct and so big and there's obvious weirdness. But actually, if you drill down just a little bit, you realize like he is not a passive character. He is not without agency within mm-hmm. it. I don't know if you've ever read Kafka's The Trial- you have this guy who wakes up, and the police are there, and like, you have to go, you're under arrest yeah. for this thing. And he goes, and then it's all about the strange alienating mm-hmm. things of him going through this trial. And a friend pointed out to me, he's like, never once does the character say I'm right. not guilty. The whole thing is that he's just trying to understand the system around him. So, too, with Lowry, it is not just the story of a naive caught up in um, in that world. The other interesting thing about the character of Sam Lowry, I- I've
1: never seen Gilliam address, and I doubt that it's something that he intended, but I'm so in the movie when I'm watching it yeah. that I almost want Sam Lowry just to go along and get along and not to rock the boat. The consequences are ripped so large that I find myself actually rooting against the the success of the main character. So it makes me kind of complicit in the society that he's putting on the screen. And that's probably a part of all of us, right? Is that we all will choose ease if given the chance. And Sam Lowry, in the beginning of the film, really chooses that ease. And I think that's such an interesting choice to sit down and start from that position. This has him reluctant, really, all the way through. And he really then becomes caught up in something
0: more than he is the agent of something. But it's because of his own selfish desires, spoiler, his love, his sort of fantasy love of this woman, yeah, which is also an interesting thing, the conception of that kind of romantic love from afar where it has more to do with what you're projecting on them than the person. Well, that was the entirety of my love life at 16, 17 (laughs) years
1: old. Let's play a beginning. This is the scene that starts the film. There's a brilliant scene where all of the events that we're about to watch in Brazil are set off by someone killing a fly, which falls into a teletype machine. And instead of issuing an arrest warrant for Harry Tuttle, it issues an arrest warrant for Harry Buttle. The authorities arrive and confront his wife and children and quickly lock him up into a canvas bag with neck locks and chains. And this little bit of a scene unfolds.
2: I hereby inform you under powers entrusted to me under section 47 paragraph 7 of council order number 438476 that Mr. Buttle, Ah. Archibald, residing at 412 North Tower, Shangri-La Towers, has been invited to assist the Ministry of Information with certain inquiries and that he is liable to certain financial obligations as specified in council order RB-CZ-907-X. Sign here, please. Ah. please. What's that? Press harder this time. Good. What is this all about? That is your receipt for your husband. Thank you and this is my receipt for your receipt.
1: What's so brilliant about that scene is her utter Englishness at being willing to sign twice on some ridiculous paperwork for her husband. Yeah. And all this the staging. I mean, the seriousness with which the wife and the children are reacting to their father and husband being dragged away by the state. And being billed for it. you being billed, billed, billed for, for your for own. Privilege. <laughs> uh, we- <laughs> which Gilliam says was an actual thing that was going on in the world at the time. No kidding. He was talking that in... I should remember where it is because I'm about to slander a innocent country.
0: Let's say France.
1: No, it was like somewhere in South or Central America where people were being billed for their own arrest and torture. Wow. He'll always say, he's like, these things are all happening. I mean, I know people think it's so exaggerated and so
0: insane, but like, yeah. not really. I think that kind of dystopian and that sort of exaggerated thing, there can be something very arch about it. And yet the scene where you go back to the wife Later, oh. when he attempts to deliver a check. Heartrending. Here we are now. It plays as sort of satire. Being like, okay, I guess I'll. Trust you, you're shoving this thing in my face. And yet later you get the sense this is not just a, this is not a prop. It takes on real human and emotional stakes. She is devastated by the loss of her husband. It makes this horrific society feel that much more real.
1: Sam Lowry working for Mr. Kurtzman, brilliantly played by Ian Holm as a weepy, squirming toad of... Of a incompetent, incompetent, I think that might be part of it too. terrified, incompetent manager. Ian Holm is the boss, and sucks Ian out. Holm is the depiction of middle management, yeah. living in fear that a check won't be cashed and his life will be upturned as a result. Utterly reliant on Sam Lowry. Yeah, Jonathan Price. It's funny. I was watching one of the documentaries about the making of the movie and. A lot of people in the documentary about the making of the movie are doing a bit in the documentary. For example, Michael Palin is brilliantly doing various things throughout his interview. So he's not really like taking it seriously, but as such, he's ended up giving you a really concise synopsis, both of what the movie is about and his own abilities as an actor. And the one of Gilliam's co-writers who also plays Lime. Lime, who's got an amazing face. Yeah. He's also sort of doing a bit throughout the interview. Jonathan Price is just seated in a chair and he's either doing a bit or he is, or the exertion and the effort that it must have taken to portray this character in virtually every scene in the movie nearly killed him because he is so wrung out and almost devoid of any emotion whatsoever and very flat in his interview in an interesting way. It shows you what a brilliant actor he is, but also what he had to do. So Jonathan Price, Sam Lowry, brilliant Kim Greist plays Jill Layton, who is the dream girl in his imagination, and and also a real-life truck driver in the world that they're living in. De Niro famously plays Archibald Harry Tuttle. We'll play a clip of him later. Uh, The late Catherine Hellman, who just died last week, plays Sam's mother in a brilliant comedic turn. Yeah. Bob Hoskins, Michael Palin, Ian Richardson, Mr. Warren with two N's, Uh, Sam's boss in Information Retrieval. We've got a clip of him later, too. Um, we mentioned George Orwell before. Actually, the numbering of the form that gets referred to, the 27B stroke 6, is a reference to George Orwell's home at 27B Canonbury Square, London. Oh wow. Up 6 half flights of stairs where he lived while writing parts of 1984. So I guess even though Gilliam didn't read it, he knew enough <laughs> about it to be able to to,
0: to incorporate a PA to do that research. 27B stroke 6, um this cast is one of those and I guess I guess this is Britain all over in the sense of um it's a highlight everybody is somebody you've seen from somewhere else and everybody is fantastic my favorite discovery if you can if I can use that word was you know Bob Hoskins who is always mm. fantastic his partner which I believe is Dowser Brilliant. played by uh, Derek O'Connor. Yes. Somebody that from the first time that I saw it, however many years ago, I remembered that performance so vividly because it's such it's such a strange small thing. And he brings something that is so unexpected to it and, uh, and yet seems so right uh, for this world. But like everybody who's in it, you recognize uh, from somewhere else. In fact, there's actually a lot of the cast of Game of Thrones in here. Uh, really? <laughs> I guess that's going too far. But there is definitely one guy, Peter Vaughn, who plays Mr. Helpman. Oh, sure. Is in Game of Thrones, God, as is alive? Jonathan
1: price himself. Going back to, to Dowser for a second, Gilliam has a great thing where, I guess he's used Derek O'Connor in a couple different movies. I think he was either in Life of Brian or one of the other early Python movies. Uh-huh. And Gilliam said he had this great quality, which- You as an actor will understand how rare this is. His great quality would be that he would get a script that had a bunch of lines of dialogue for his own character, and he would inevitably choose not to do the dialogue and replace it with some kind of physical action instead. Mm. And the thing that he came up with in this movie, which is what you're remembering and which is so memorable, is he basically just repeats everything Bob Hoskins says. And originally in the script, he had his own lines of dialogue. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say everything Bob says. And that gives
0: it that sycophantic toadying-like quality. And it's also very threatening, you know, as if, oh, he's, yes. as if he's like emphasizing, as if there's some nuance that Lowry might have missed about so, the word duct. Um, let's play a little bit of Bob Hoskins and Dowser
1: paying a central services visit. Central
3: services. Yes. Central
2: services. Oh, yes. You ranks, sir. You ranks, sir. Trouble with your air conditioning. Air conditioning, sir. Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, all right. It's fixed. It's fixed. Fixed? Yes, um, I mean it um, fixed itself. <laughs> oh, it fixed itself. <laughs> fixed itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. These <laughs> <laughs> don't fix themselves. Well, they don't fix themselves. <laughs> he's tampered with it. Now. Yeah, I think he's tampered with it. <laughs> well, so on. sorry you've had a wasted journey. <laughs> 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 I, mean, I think... We'll have a little look
1: at you. No, you I can't. Think we should do <laughs> yes, you know? Have you got a 27B stroke six? 27B stroke six. 27B Bob Hoskins hits Dowser in the head with a wrench <laughs> as he's shuddering, and in the background, Bob De Niro has
0: a gun and a flashlight pointed at them, ready to shoot. That's just such a brilliant scene. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the term retrofuturism? Sure, uh, that's one of the things that I love about this. This also just, what the kids call steampunk today. Steam or diesel punk, Yeah. Oh, is uh, diesel punk a thing now? What's the di- now? I Wait, would actually okay. think of this is more of a diesel. Punk Tell me thing. the differentiation between steampunk and diesel punk. And, if you, you know, would. I may not be uh, I may not be the best person to ask, but but, but steampunk implies like it's nineteenth century technology, okay, like Victorian uh, technology, Victoria, which is why steam would be the power okay. thing. And things where you go up a little bit into the early 20th century, into the twenties and thirties, uh, that which I think is similar to this, this sort of combination of art deco, mm-hmm. gangster, yep. noirish look, uh, I've heard of referred to diesel. as diesel punk. Interesting.
1: Retrofuturism fits this movie to it. Yeah. Even the costumes in the central services scene, the hats that Bob Hoskins and the other guy are wearing have these comically long bills, the clothes, the suits, everyone's wearing sort of those 1920s kind of gangster looking suits. Interestingly, which I wasn't really aware of until I watched a lot of the materials supporting the movie this time, mostly existing locations were used for the interiors of everything, which adds a certain something that is kind of indefinable, but is obviously present certainly in the restaurant scenes and the Ministry of Information scenes. And then of course, most notably- the concluding scene where Sam Lowry is taken captive inside. Oh, yeah, I wonder what they filmed that inside. Uh, that is a disused nuclear cooling tower. And it, it came about because as they were doing location scouting, they passed by an old power station that had those three-mile island-looking cooling towers. Mm-hmm. And Terry Gilliam had just happened to say, like, you know, I always just wanted to go inside one. Is it yeah. possible to go inside? He's just kind of doing it as a lark. The only thing yeah. they built... Um, this is the end scene when Jack Lint, played by Michael Palin, is about to lobotomize Sam Lowry. The only thing they built was the walkway and the little stationary area where Sam's in the dental chair and the instruments are on. Right. But the the massive tower that they're in is is a real
0: structure. Oh God, that, it's it's chilling. It's and you, so you couldn't
1: fast. build anything like that. And today yeah. they would probably just do that digitally, in a way that would take something away.
0: Yeah. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Back to Terry Gilliam's aesthetic, one of the things that I liked about the retrofuturist vision that it had was it's also, it's a dystopia, but it's also, (laughs) here we have a future that is not working right, that all of this great technology is sort of there, but has already passed its sell-by date and is starting to break down. And because of the lack of... One of the reasons might be a potential lack of initiative or fear amongst everybody who's supposed to take care of these things. They don't actually get fixed. Right. From when he wakes up, his Wallace and Gromit-esque alarm slash breakfast system doesn't work. And uh, he does a great physical bit where he's trying to eat the toast and it's flapping. And nobody really remarks upon it except for Tuttle himself. I mean, that's Tuttle's uh, reason for being. But the fact that that's in the background gives it makes it so— palpable and very pessimistic about the future in a way that Alien did, that Blade Runner did, that this technology is not shiny and new. It's going to break and that most of the people will, in the same way that Mrs. Buttle does, just adjust. Yeah. I also think that it's very English. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if you grew up in England,
1: you would be used to things not working as they're supposed to in this manner. And I think that's that's probably the, Terry Gilliam is American, but but moved to England. And I think that's a very English sentiment. I think that's probably why the De Niro character is the one who sort of... Comments on and has gone rogue in his in his attempt to fix this stuff because he's he's not free to fix it if he worked for Central Services.
0: <laughs> the way he talks about it, like th- the romance of the being romance. a heating duct engineer. going here, going
1: there. <laughs> so it was fascinating to hear how De Niro, who at the time was one of the biggest movie stars in the world, and did not ever prior to appear in a film in a small role like this. Uh-huh. He's usually the leading. Person in role, And he's in the movie because he had made two movies previously with the producer Arnon Milchan, who Arnon Milchan and Terry Gilliam were kind of the first two cogs in this machine that started working, where Terry Gilliam, coming off a hit film at the Cannes Film Festival, was talking to Arnon Milchan about an idea that he had. And Arnon Milchan said, hey, great, I'll fund the first few rounds of script development. And Arnon Milchan had just worked with De Niro, I think, on King of Comedy mm-hmm. and something prior to that. And that's how Bob kind of ended up getting involved. And there's a great anecdote from the editor of the film who did an amazing job yeah. stitching this movie together. And he says he's in the edit room while he's actually editing the movie. And there's one of the scenes that we just played, the Central Services scene is, is playing. And he's talking about De Niro's performance. And he says, this guy is like a magician. I'm, I'm sitting here in one Wonder- I'm, I'm like playing the, the takes and it's not there. So he's he's looking at individual takes of De Niro scenes and he's like he's using them and he's like it, it, this may be funny in this scene, but like, I, I don't know who this is. Is this a character? Like, what's he doing? He never understood until the movie was completed and he watched the whole thing. And then, as he says, this fully knit together performance materialized that oh. De Niro was aware of, but that he, as the editor getting the dailies and the rushes, couldn't really see. But it was a whole once it was assembled.
0: I don't know if you saw the, uh, the story that apparently De Niro had expressed interest in playing Jack Lint. I saw that, although...
1: It wouldn't really fit to have De Niro, an Americanized De Niro, play that character. I think that Palin is so perfect for that role, the menace that he contains
0: beneath his humor. It's funny. I think this is probably the first and, in I guess, only non-overtly comic thing that I've seen him do. You know, everything else was either a Monty Python sketch or Fish Called Wanda so to hear him acting a role where he's able to use that same comic sensibility, but it creates this menace that is heartbreaking, too, yeah. because it's it's sort of always there. Even before you know what his job is exactly, you can tell that there's a... <laughs> a frenemy element to the friendship between Lowry and Lint. The thing that
1: Palin brings to it that's so cool is Jack Lint has long ago made peace with the moral bankruptcy required to be him in this society. Yet he wears that torture a little bit on his sleeve. It's still there. His humanity is there even as he's repudiated it there's still this central likability about him in a way where you kind of don't want to believe that it's true because he does have that bonhomie. You want to believe in the friendship. This is, again, this thing that contributed to the sense as I watch it sort of of like the part of me that's a go along to get along toady that wouldn't want to pop up and be smacked down by the hammer of society. You're kind of like, oh God, just play nice with Jekyll so you can get the job and just, oh, it's okay. But of course- Another brilliant set element is the use of those those glass cubes from the '80s in so many scenes. Uh, it's kind of a theme. Um, you can see one behind you in the the apartment scene. Yeah, and they're used in many many places to show horrible things going on behind the glass that you kind of can see but kind of can't. Yeah. So when Jacqueline is torturing somebody, or when the funny scene where the woman is transcribing the sounds of torture from Jacqueline's torture chamber, and behind her you see these shadows doing horrible, despicable things, but you can't really see it because it's through these frosted cubes of glass. Yeah. Brilliant touch, like brilliant uh, production design and set design to sort of have all of these things thought out. And Gilliam said a funny thing where... He's like, look, my my thing with the movie is I I just start from like what I want to see. And I convince myself that it's possible, even though I know it's probably not possible. But once I convince myself, then I get to the production meetings and I start the process of convincing everyone else that it's possible. And then basically they figure out some way to make it as possible as possible. And in this case, it all just worked out. The production design is is incredible. It's bizarre to think, uh, I think it did get nominated for production design for Academy Awards. But it was only production design and maybe hair and makeup. I'd have to look up what the...
0: I watched the Battle of Brazil. I hadn't heard about its final sort of vindication by the LA Film Critics Association. I didn't even think about the Academy Awards.
1: I was Best Original Screenplay Nominee and Best Production Design. Uh-huh. I mean, it deserved a lot more awards than that, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the realization of the script, which has a bunch of interesting contributors, most notably, I guess you would say in the theater, Tom Stoppard. Uh, I always thought it was Stoppard. And I've always Stopper. winced when people said Stoppard. Actually, you know what it it's, really is? It's Tomas Straussler.
0: That's Tom Stoppard's real name. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I did know he had changed it, but he's I'd forgotten a, that it was-
1: He's a Czech-born British playwright. Suddenly, so much about him that I do know kind of slipped into place once I understood that, oh, he's, he's other. His yeah. otherness sort of talks- in a couple of things that I saw related to the movie about knowing that he doesn't really belong. Right, he's a fake Englishman, and by his own admission, his fa- his stepfather, I believe, was a professional Englishman almost.
0: And I guess that's an overlap between he and Terry Gilliam. It's often said that in some ways you need an outside view to truly understand a society, or vice versa. That or in vice order versa, to understand yeah. you, to understand your own society, you need to leave and sort of look at it from afar, like um, James Joyce having uh, left Ireland.
1: So the screenplay was a result of Gilliam doing his Gilliam thing and kind of working it uh, through a first draft with Charles Alverson, who had co-written Jabberwocky, which was an early Gilliam film. But then I guess there was some kind of dispute for 20 years where Gilliam denied that Alverson had made any contribution and then begrudgingly changed his story. I don't know. This is all on the Wikipedia, some crazy Gilliam stuff on the Wikipedia page. But then uh, Charles McCown, who plays Harvey Lyme, I think wrote some of the important drafts. And then Tom Stoppard got involved. And as he says, I thought I made it funnier, but I'm not sure.
0: Well, look, with a director like Terry Gilliam, where so much of the humor is in the detail and in the visuals and his Visual style is so much uh, part of it. It's tough to say who made what funny. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about the restaurant. Uh, Madame Lowry?
2: Oh, to hell with the diet. I'm going to have a number eight, please. A most perceptive transfer. Stay so, (laughs) Madame. Monsieur? Stay. It's rare. Monsieur, quel numero? I don't know which number. Mother, that one. There. That's fine, thanks. Mother, will you please listen Um, to me? uh, You wicked girl. You started your treatment. Say the number, please. You noticed. You have to say the number. Where well, I can talk to, talk to, to tell you all about it. Number three.
0: This also goes to the broken down nature of this society that go to this gourmet restaurant and not only do they have to order by number, but what comes out is cat food. Colored with like food coloring to look vaguely like the thing that it's supposed to be. Gilliam will sometimes refer to this, I guess,
1: as part of a trilogy with time bandits as the first, Brazil as the second and then the adventures of Baron Munchausen as the third. Because he says all are about, quote, the craziness of our awkwardly ordered society and the desire to escape it through whatever means possible. But Terry Gilliam says a lot of things to a lot of different people at a lot of different times. Right. By his own admission, he's the definition of the untrustworthy narrator. He'll have hilarious things in this making of where he's like, he'll start telling a story and then catch himself
0: and and sort of be like, ah, you know, I don't even know if that's true. Have you seen Lost in La Mancha? Oh my God, Lost Who in La Mancha. Who better to have tried to make a Don Quixote film? Though I guess it Listen, finally did get made with Jonathan Price. And
1: uh, the unimpersonatable <laughs> Adam Driver. Unimpersonatable. Talk about tilting at windmills. It's impossible to do an impersonation of Adam Driver. And if anyone can prove me wrong, there's a cash price. Right into Right Apple in. It's your to audio file. Oh, the Don Quixote documentary, which if people haven't seen, please seek this out. It is a brilliant, brilliant. I mean, it's of a piece with some of the other great, almost were film documentaries like Jodorowsky's Dune, um, the one we were talking about about uh, Richard, what's his name with- um, Not Richard Lester, but uh, Richard Lester. something. I think I did uh, God, we're gonna have the same exact- lack Dr. Min- Moreau. Richard Stanley. Yes. That is a brilliant documentary, but this one, what, it's like Gilliam's burning ambition is to put Don Quixote on screen and then he casts someone who speaks no English, really. He can't even communicate with this actor effectively, right? And it just seems like most of it is like getting this guy who was, what, 86 years old at the yeah. time up on a horse- in the hot sun. Say what you will. He looked right. <laughs> he did look he right. Man. He had the look. <laughs> had but I think Terry was like, like too fixated on the aesthetic. Yeah. And not whether the guy could do it. So now I guess Jonathan Price is actually
0: playing. Don Quixote, Quixote. But you know, one thing that I have to say about that documentary, about the battle for Brazil, about and about the theme, the sort of end image that makes this movie at all, I'm sure Terry Gilliam is a very difficult person to deal with. He's an unreliable narrator because he's doing what he wants to do in the moment without sort of <laughs> worrying about the truth. You're looking at his conception of the world in this, which is the second part of that trilogy. It's not an optimistic ending, especially because, you know, there is that switch where you don't realize at first that this rescue and that all the positive things are his retreat into fantasy. which I don't think does Lowry any credit because it's almost like he is giving up and hiding in it. He has a forced lobotomy. I mean, what's he supposed to do?
1: You can't resist when you're strapped to a chair. And also, Gilliam doesn't think of it as a sad ending. He thinks of it as a happy ending because you are unable to live a free life in the society as depicted in the movie. And the only freedom available is that freedom given to him in his
0: imagination. That's the only freedom. And I do get that, but he starts as sort of a passive guy in the beginning who sort of just is eschewing responsibility and doesn't want to advance. And it's, you know, it's great that he doesn't want to take part in this society, but I think it's saying that that's not quite enough. That somebody like Tuttle, who is a person of action, somebody like Jill... Yeah. You know, these are people that are actively
1: resisting. It's a cynical view of humanity and what we will do to each other and to the world. It's darkly cynical. It's 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 the inevitable. This is what human beings will, will do if given half the chance and have done. And so I think for his worldview, the beauty that's contained in the movie, the romance, and I think that's the appeal, of course, to my 16, 17-year-old mind when I first saw it, the pathos between that which can't be. Mm -hmm. And he equally believes in both. He's both a romantic and a hard-won cynic. And that's what makes him him. That's why he picks so many of these fights. And he seems like a guy that has to fight in order to get where he's going. Yeah, And he has to create something to fight with in many cases in order to complete his process. And of course, that's the problem that the American studio had with the cut. The marketing guy and Frank Price said, great, let's just cut the movie at the part where they make love. And it's a happy ending, together.
0: Which of course is literally lobotomizing the film. That is cutting
1: the thing that made it. Just to go back to De Niro for a second, this is uh, De Niro's first scene in the film. Sam Lowry has called central services and gotten a recording, which ends by telling you it's not a recording, and then begins saying the exact same thing again. Just little throwaway bits of the fully conceived reality, and also the sounds that the phones make—that ear, ear, all the annoying sounds of technology are presaged in this 1985 yeah. movie. Anyway, unbeknownst to Lowry, Harry Tuttle, as you mentioned, a guy who's just in it for the thrill of fixing ducks and being able to move <laughs> freely, shows up.
2: Harry Tuttle, heating engineer, at your service. Tuttle, are you from Central Services? <laughs> I called Central Services. Well, they're a little overworked these days. Luckily, I intercepted your call. You did. What was that business with the gun? Just a precaution, sir. Just a precaution. I've had traps set for me before now. And there are plenty of people in central services who'd love to get their hands on Harry Tufton. <laughs> are you telling me that this is illegal? Well, yes and no. Officially, only central service operators are supposed to touch the stuff. Would you hold this, please? But nowadays, with all the new rules and regulations, they can't get decent staff anymore. So they tend to turn a blind eye, as long as I'm careful. But wouldn't it be simpler just to, you know, you know work for? With... Sorry, yes. Yeah. I was saying, wouldn't it be simpler to work for Central Services? Ah, paperwork. We couldn't stand the paperwork. Listen, this whole system of yours could be on fire, and I couldn't even turn on a kitchen tap without filling out a 27b stroke six. Bloody paperwork. <laughs> I suppose one has to expect a certain amount. Why? I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out. Wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Now they got the whole country sectioned off. Can't make a move without a form.
1: It's just so hilarious. Gilliam said that when they were rehearsing, De Niro would show up. He said it was as as if De Niro was in another movie in which his character was the star of the movie. He would spend hours putting together all of that kit and equipment, everything functional. Had to know how to do all that stuff in real time. Didn't want it to just be cuts and fakes. Yeah. And it's brilliant. And also... Gilliam says he's really Lowry's only friend. He appears at a few key moments to help things along and to save Sam. That is underscored in the end when, spoiler alert, it appears that he's going to save Sam a final time. But of course, that's all taking place in that bravura last section of Sam's fantasy
0: world. Where is attempting to escape in, in, yes. in any different way, including the church, including uh, the aid of Tuttle. In the end, ultimately, he and Jill do drive away. In his mind. In his mind, yeah. Yeah. Which is the only place we can truly be free. If you let the bastards take the rest away from you.
1: Well, there's no letting. They take, they do. You don't have any free will, Chris. You're living in an
0: illusion, man. To go a little bit further onto the crew. Sure. Besides just Terry Gilliam, Roger Pratt the cinematographer. Brilliant. I mean, it's beautifully shot. I lump so much of that to- The lenses, man. Gilliam's uh, design, but Roger Pratt, he had shot Tim Burton's Batman mm-hmm. in 89. Similar look. And I think Anton First, who was the production designer on Batman, was saying that he was influenced by Brazil. It has a similar retrofuturist look, taking some of these noir things and putting things together that don't necessarily make logical sense, but they they have a mood similarity. An interesting factoid regarding the sound effects of the computers, because uh, as I mm-hmm. said before, the fact that everything was sort of breaking down, everything looked, and this, again, this is such a big part of Terry Gilliam, looks handmade and you can kind of see kind of what everything is supposed to do and everything has these awkward sounds but they would be the uh, same computer sound effects from Alien. Oh really? I didn't know that. Specifically, you know, the monitors that they were using because it was a similar kind of thing of things that were uh, broken down and who knows, maybe Ian Holm just happened to bring all the tapes (laughs) over from one set to the other. Oh,
1: I've got that. I I can bring it over. (laughs) Uh, You know, interesting thing you were talking before about how everything fits together. As strange as it is to say about a movie that's two hours and 23 minutes long, when to edit the film down to meet a contractual obligation, he was like, I can't, there's nothing to take out. He's kind of right. He'd be hard pressed to trim fat from the film. They famously shot a bunch more dream sequences and ended up just using one dream sequence with the flying as the majority of the times they would cut away to the dream, because that one worked the best and cut in the best. And then there's the other portion where he's fighting the samurai warrior uh, and the thing like brick version of Ian Holm comes out
2: um, don't go
1: Please. and it's so funny in the making of where they show the flying sequences is basically a 6 inch model of Jonathan Price with the wings the hair on the model is made of bird feathers so that when filmed five times normal speed, and then slowing that down so that you have that graceful, very syrupy slow motion. And the clouds, which are obviously just smoke machines, take on depth of movement. And the hair is now rippling in this manufactured breeze. It's hilarious when you watch. It's like, it's a little doll on a fishing pole. Huh. that they're flying around yet when it's cut together it works so well for these dream sequences and then in the close-ups Jonathan Price wearing this contraption the great irony is of course his contractual obligation was to turn in a movie that i believe was 2 hours and 15 minutes long right he turned in a cut at 2 hours and 23 minutes long and and swore he couldn't find 7 minutes or however long that is i don't can't do math 23
0: yeah. 15 7 uh,
1: yeah 8 but yeah okay so you're
0: right. <laughs> it's, okay. A, it's magic okay smarty
1: pants two other clips one clip we should just play because she did pass away recently and she's brilliant Catherine Hellman we are introduced in this incredible scene <laughs> her face is just being stretched and pulled <laughs> took her 10 hours to get into that makeup and then she would develop sores underneath the latex and then we have to wait two or three days and then put it back on My, and film it again
0: the indignities of acting the things you do the things you guys at, do for immortality. she's brilliant
1: in this movie
2: It's time for you to grow up and accept responsibility. Your poor father would be appalled at your lack of promotion. Mother, I just wish you would stop interfering. I'm happy where I am. No, you're not. Jack Lint is a lesson to you. He doesn't have your brains, but he's got the ambition you haven't got the ambition luckily you've got me and the deputy minister mr helpman was very close to your please mrs lowry (sighs) don't get upset (sighs) mr lowry please wait in reception you're giving the wrinkles you see god just try and relax mrs lowry Hmm. i'll make you 20 years younger (sighs) (sighs) (laughs) oh dr jaffey you are a genius Would you like to be Surgeon General?
3: I know simply everybody.
2: Well, they won't know you when I've finished with you.
1: She tells a story where Gilliam called her and said, you know, I'm making a movie and and your kind of style of acting has a place in it. She was surprised because she didn't see how she would fit into the universe of Time Bandits or Monty Python or any of the things that he was known for. And... This is before she was a big TV star in Who's the
0: Boss. You know, it gets to the class elements of it mm. too. Now we're getting into Christmas. <laughs> Now we're getting into Chris's territory, people. <laughs> Sam always has this net behind him. His biggest problem is like, oh, please, mom, don't give me the promotion. I, I'm happy to work with this lump, Ian Holm. It's but he's a very, very different. He does accept the promotion and his life ends. Sure, but he accepts the promotion not to fit no. in as the common dream he, girl. The, right, to stalk this woman. It's a very different life than the Buttle family is living, than Jill seems to be living, and that he is able to have no care. This is not meant to be a criticism of him. The movie is very conscious that there are people who are making these decisions, who are living a certain life. And it's the lack of consciousness that he has of it that that is opened when he does care about something, which is the love of this woman. So it starts him going down the road of realizing how corrupt and how horrible the society is. And so therefore he can't fit into it anymore, which is why they've got to got to chop off part of his uh, part gotta of his brain. Got to zap part of the brain. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that his complicity
1: in it and his ability to be who he is is unbeknownst even to him for much of the movie. I think of the restaurant scene where they're serving the cat food when the terrorist bomb goes off next to them. He doesn't bat an eye and he's the one who has the damning line of
2: It's my lunch hour. Besides, it's not my department.
1: The one bit of casting that Gilliam has never been generous about. I don't know how I feel. i see how you feel. Kim Greist as Joel Layton. This was the second movie she'd ever been in. After Chud. After Chud, of course. Cannibalistic human Humanoid underground, underground, underground dwellers. dwellers yep.
0: Although that's uh, not really, spoiler for
2: Chud. It's- I love Chud.
1: I do too. Daniel Stern, John Hurd,
0: and a bunch of chuds. Chuds a good movie. We should watch Chud. What, what does it stand for? Is it
2: cannibalistic Central-
0: humanoid underground dwellers? But that's a lie, as it turns out. That it's actually it's like a garbage thing. The chuds were created uh, because of this. Like, oh, cannibal- contamination hazard urban disposal. That's what it
1: was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Secretly hiding the waste byproduct. Yeah. Anyway, let's not go to Chud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're gonna
1: be <laughs> anyway. Kim Greist. I think he had looked at a bunch of different actresses and wanted a bunch of different actresses. She has to be the dream girl. And then she also has to be believable truck driving. You're supposed to think that she's a terrorist through much of the film. Gilliam has always been a little ungenerous about her performance in the movie and unhappy with it.
0: I don't know what he's criticizing specifically. I mean, she is Just that not, she's not that good. I don't know. Like I bought her in the uh, I keep thinking about the truck scene. And the sort of wooing thing, which while strange how quickly it goes, she is believable as the truck driver and as somebody who cares about her neighbors, willing to inconvenience herself, trying to go back and forth through the bureaucracy. Anybody who would be stepping into a cast mm-hmm. of these heavy hitters is going to have a
1: difficult time holding the screen. And I think she does acquit herself well in the in the handful of scenes that you're talking about. And I guess it's kind of a thankless role in a way. Yeah. Like many, maybe Terry Gilliam roles Women's, for women. Yeah. That's why, it's, that's why I use the term ungenerous, because it's sort of like, well, you you didn't write a really interesting character, yeah. and then you're kind of like, he, he's pretty open about being like, yeah, I wasn't happy. So I don't know. Maybe he's got some issues with women or something. Yeah. I guess the films are pretty male-centric, right? Um, yeah. But anyway, the scene that you're talking about is a very funny one. Here's a little bit of it.
2: You, you probably think I'm, uh, 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 I'm bonkers, right? Mad, raving.
3: No. No, I think you're very attractive. What? Yeah. Yeah, sit back. Let, let me have a look at you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good looking, sexy. Just my type.
2: <laughs> uh, I don't believe you. Why not? Well, I, I, I just don't deserve such terrific luck. Damn right.
1: She kicks him out of the truck. I think she's quite good in that. I think so, too. You know, I mean, he's doing all of the ticky, shaking, wiggling, googly-eyed, sweating And she's underplaying and
0: there's enough ambiguity there that there is a (laughs) surprise when she kicks him out.
1: One last little clip that I want to play, Ian Richardson as the boss. Gilliam says, making a film as a director, people are coming at you a hundred times a day where, should I do this shade green or this shade green? Should the water be this full or this half full? He's like, I just learned long ago. You don't have to actually know. Just make a decision and they'll figure it out on their own. And if you made the wrong decision, they'll just correct it and you'll never even really have to worry (laughs) about it
0: you know, the gift that everybody is giving throughout the whole movie, because it takes place. Apparently Christmas is very long in, 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 in the future. Apparently. It's a couple weeks. Are those
1: executive yes. decision-maker things? So Ian Richard plays Mr. Warren with two N's, which I think is a brilliant thing. Uh, Sam's boss at information retrieval. This is the job that he finally accepted in order to get the information about his dream girl. And he's wandering around and he keeps hearing the sounds of a little gaggle of executives. And you'll hear his new boss making a wealth of executive decisions
0: half as terrorists, the rest as victims.
2: Mr. Warren. Yes. Mr. Warren. No. Mr. Mr. Spax. Yes. Definitely no. My name's Larry, Mr.
3: Warren. Sam Larry. Ah, Larry.
2: Yes. Sister? No. No more. OK. Mr. Warren, uh, we uh, am glad to have you on board. <laughs> these were... Yes. You like it up here? Mr. Nice. back. We've got a crack team of, are they kidding, decision makers. So, well, no, it's ambiguous. I'm expecting big things to accomplish the finance of you. Ah, don't let progress see those. Between you and me, Larry, this. No, no, department. Tell records to get stuffed. It's about to be upgraded. And the...
3: ah!
2: Here we are. Your very own number on your very own door. And behind that door, your very own office. Congratulations, DZ stroke 015. Welcome to the team. Yes. No. Cancel that. Send two copies to my.
1: The pirouette he does at the end is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. He turns 360 degrees around, and everyone thinks he's going to stop at the door (laughs) on the other side of the hall, and then he
0: continues spinning. God, Ian Richardson, so great. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily.
1: Brazil was a co-production between Fox and Universal. Fox took the international distribution and I think paid $9 million for it. Fox, after originally passing on the movie, came back and on the heels of Gilliam's success with The Meaning of Life, decided to get into a bidding war for the U.S. distribution rights. Gilliam seems to take a a lot of glee in putting himself above the machinations of Hollywood, but there's really no way to be above it. I think he tells a very good
0: story, but I don't think he's quite as above it as he would like us to believe. Yeah, I'm sure he would admit that if pinned down. Because he even says, like, yeah, there was some meeting and I wasn't supposed (laughs) to be there, but I showed up anyway. Exactly. If you were that above it, you You would not be there. there. Anyway, he was a little bit in, in
1: demand, and Arnon Milchan had shopped around the initial version of the script, and every studio in Hollywood passed on the movie. However, Fox said, hey, we'll make this if
0: Terry Gilliam directs Enemy, Enemy Mine. Mine. Now, have you seen Enemy oh, Mine? Oh, yes, I have. That is something that I've seen a bunch, because it happened to be like going over to a friend's house, and it would be on yes. HBO or whatever all the time. What's his name in the scale makeup? Uh, Lewis Gossett Jr. Lewis Gossett Jr. And Dennis Dennis Quaid. Quaid they both acted the shit out of they it. They sure did. And like the metaphor could not have been applied any more thickly. Uh, yeah, I, I have found I was actually surprised to read that it was such a big flop because I have fond memories of it. But so Fox said, hey, look, if you direct enemy mine, which they thought was an A-list picture. Right.
1: If you direct enemy mine, we'll pay for Brazil. And Gilliam says no. And then the way he tells it, because he turned down what they thought was an A-list picture to stay free to do Brazil they then thought oh brazil must be a lot better than we think it is yeah. we
0: want that we need we don't that we want to be in the brazil business it's like office space but <laughs> in hollywood that's too good to be true yeah.
1: anyway 9 million from fox for international and uh what's how do you make 15 million if you have 9 <laughs> Help me out, math guy. Uh, borrow six more? <laughs> okay. Six million bucks is all that Universal is putting in. Gilliam has a contractual obligation to submit a two-hour and 15-minute film to Universal. Fox accepts and releases in Europe the two-hour and 23-minute cut
0: to great reviews, great audience reaction. The film does very, very well. And and the battle uh, for Brazil was so interesting to hear, like, the suits, talking about this movie, this movie that is so exaggerated and so strange to look at, to hear them be like, yeah, you know, it was a nice, it was a nice picture. And I think somebody said, like, I thought there was a piece of popular entertainment in there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bothered with it. And so the very fact that they are looking at the same thing in a very different way that Terry Gilliam is. Now, for a lot of reasons we won't get into, Universal is in sort of a new position at the time
1: when this film comes across the desk of Marvin Antonowski, who is the president of marketing at Universal, and Sid Sheinberg... Although first it goes over Frank Price's desk, who's the chairman of Universal. And in the documentary, I think you'd agree, Chris, shows himself to be a corporate survivor of the <laughs> ultimate, <laughs> that's, right? That's, I mean, he was the one that I just, I would- <laughs> That I was guy is a killer. And Gilliam tells this story where he's like, Frank Price was really good at surviving anything that could be potentially bad for Frank Price. And here comes this hundred ton hot potato. And Frank Price brilliantly sort of just shoves the potato (laughs) over to Sid Sheinberg, who's the president of Universal, and says, you deal with it, right? And Sid Sheinberg, who's no slouch, I mean, Sid Sheinberg discovered Steven Spielberg, but Sid Sheinberg was sort of preternaturally unable to deal with Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Uh, who represented
0: a lot of things that Sid Sheinberg found anathema to the film business. It's so funny to hear them talk to those, Like you said, the fact that he discovered Steven Spielberg, who's a wonderful filmmaker, a genius in his own right, but a very different kind of genius than Terry Gilliam. Yes. And the very fact that somebody's like, I've got a good thing going with this kind of style. And w- what is this? What, what is, is this that you're showing me? Where you make the models yourselves? Of- he,
1: he says, and there's a great documentary, which I encourage people to seek out if you're interested in this stuff called the battle of brazil and there's a great book that jack matthews wrote which how many books have been written about movies that terry gilliam either wanted to make or didn't <laughs> want to make or did make it's a great making of what went wrong watching it now i understand where frank price and sid scheinberg and marvin antonowski are coming from i understand what their point is and frank price of all people is the guy that says it two hours and 23 minutes you can only have one showing a night yeah we need to have at least two It's not a terrible point. And two hours and 50 minutes is a pretty generous amount of running time to submit the movie at two hours and 23 minutes. Is he intentionally saying, fuck you? Is he trying to upset the apple cart? Because he knows that it's going to be a great story about a movie that's about the creativity of man being crushed by the soulless machine. Eight
0: minutes. Because the fact you could get eight minutes out of it. Uh, look, I have to admit, I watched the two-hour, 12-minute one. Not, not the, two the Love hours Conquers All version. Not the Love Conquers yeah. All. But I did watch the two-hour 12, which is less than 2.15. Which I think is, that's the compromise edit. That's sort of the compromise <laughs> edit. And I was reading the things that they had cut out, and they're pretty small. I don't feel like I missed. It.
1: Why didn't he just submit the cut at 215? What? I think it's Antonowski or somebody says, if he had submitted the cut, we would have had no contractual
0: option except to release the picture. Well, in the battle for Brazil, they go into, says, here's 223. And as he puts it, he's like, come on, what's eight minutes between friends, right? <laughs> Which is reasonable because look, like, if they had watched it like, Terry this is the most groundbreaking piece of cinema I've ever seen It's not like there haven't been three hour pictures before but no they did, they didn't say that the difficulty in haggling it down but when they talked about this idea of what's the name of the producer who wanted to get paid Arna Milshan Arna Mil yeah. that sort of piece of paper Terry gave away
1: his final cut yeah. Terry glosses over this. And I think in the La Mancha documentary, you see this too, where he gets a little obsessive to the point where he shoots himself in the foot and he actually acts contrary to his own interests. Because Arnold Milschen, who had put up the money, was due a payment, which he was not going to get unless they fulfilled their obligation to Universal. Universal smartly said, if you want the payment, sign this. And Terry will give over his final cut and we'll work together. And of course, what they do is they tell you, we don't want to butcher your baby either.
0: When Terry Gilliam was saying, oh, yeah, I guess the piece of paper doesn't mean anything. I was like, who (laughs) are you kidding? (laughs) Don't sign. Of course he knew that. That's the frustrating thing because I don't know if he was involved at all in the two hour 12 cut because the fact is. There was not a lot sacrificed to get there. Again, reading the breakdown of the scenes that were gone. The idea that we want to have two showings a night, so it's got to be such and such, like, that's not an unreasonable thing. And if you want to make movies, if you want to do anything, if somebody's putting up the money, there's a contract. There's a a back and forth. Yes, there's nothing wrong with submitting your two hour 23, hoping that they'll be so enamored of it that they'll make some special dispensation. But the fact that they didn't, well... Don't give up final cut. He signs away the final cut. He takes an entrenched position,
1: which is I'm not touching a frame of the movie. You have my movie. And he basically dares them to go ahead without him. And so they do that. And the studio sets up an edit room and they try to create a cut that will be satisfactory. And even in Gilliam's telling of the story, you can tell the editor, the poor editor who's put in this position, the editor doesn't want to screw Terry Gilliam, doesn't want to mess with this movie. The editor just wants to figure something out and ideally wants to figure it out With Terry Gilliam, who he calls. And Terry Gilliam says, you know, I took a first couple of calls and then I just couldn't be bothered and I stopped returning the phone calls. So he bears as much responsibility. Yeah. It's very hard to paint the studio fairly. You're always going to be the romantic hero of your own story. and Which these guys are says,
0: gonna, when he does the, the uh, public relations thing, I think he yes, even says, in Sid's defense, it was not fight. a fair fight. Yeah. But, and this is the thing that made me just think about the ending of the movie. It did get to a point that it was no longer about getting it below 2.15. Oh, no, no, no. That Sid Scheinberg was like, I, I want Italy. that happy yeah. ending. Yes. And I can understand not being able to go along with that. Now, if he hadn't signed that that thing, then yeah. it would have been about fighting and losing a frame here or there, but it would have still kept the integrity of the ending. Without that ending, without that twist... Yeah, you don't have anything. I mean, that's the whole point of the movie. It's a perfectly nice, pretty thing, but it loses everything that made the movie worthwhile. Well, where Sheinberg,
1: Price, and Antonowski were wrong was in the assumption that you could do something to this film and get a commercial film out of it. And you know what? When all is said and done, strip away the the acclaim and the cult status of the film now, they weren't wrong about the business prospect. The movie basically made $9 million, I think, in box office. And it's had a long life. It's an important film, but of course, they just were going to lose. I just want to play a little of his, I would like his voice to be heard because in watching the documentary, I found him to be not an unreasonable presence. And the way Sid Sheinberg is talking to Jack Matthews in these interview excerpts, you can hear a man who's pained that he was painted the way he was. And Terry Gilliam knew
3: how to get at Sid Sheinberg. I want to read you a file memo, which I wrote. Uh, It says, I spoke this afternoon with Terry Gilliam with respect to Brazil. I told Mr. Gilliam that I had seen his last version of the film, and although I felt the shortening and other editing changes constituted an improvement, I nonetheless thought that the film had major problems and required substantial additional work. Mr. Gilliam told me that this was his final version of the film that the film had been received well by various Americans to whom he had shown the film both in England and the United States. Additionally, he indicated that, quote, many people at Universal shared his excitement about the film. By the way, these many people are never named. I indicated to Mr. Gillian that notwithstanding his, quote, commitment to his film, the fact remained that a prior preview of the original film indicated a very poor reception from the audience, and that I felt my responsibilities precluded our releasing a film that had been so poorly received by an audience Without attempting to improve the film from an audience point of view, I invited his participation in such changes as we had in mind. Mr. Gilliam indicated he certainly did not want to be a party to this, and that I would be the recipient of a war, in quotes, which would be more unpleasant than releasing the film in his version."
1: There you have it. I mean, I, I kind of felt for Sid Sheinberg because he should have been a little smarter about this particular battle. He allowed himself to get on the hook.
0: Yes, I understand uh, you're a commercial uh, producer. You want such a yeah. kind of a film, but to be surprised that Terry Gilliam, who yes, he had had some success with Time Bandits, do you and say the meaning that, of life and meaning of life had come of life out before was this big? Yeah. But you look at them, you know, kind of what you, you know he has yeah. enough of a track record. Sid Sheinberg should not have gone into it expecting that they would be able to do this with the guy.
1: There, There are two famously funny things that get used to paint Sid Sheinberg in a negative light. One is that he famously said in a meeting with Nintendo that he viewed litigation as a profit center. He wanted to sue Nintendo for releasing Donkey Kong for infringing Universal's rights in King Kong. But of course, King Kong had been in the public domain for like 40 years by this point. So of course he lost the suit. But the quote, the one quote he said in one meeting ended up becoming a really famous indication of how these suits think. The other one, and even worse, Back to the Future is a film franchise that happened on Sid Sheinberg's watch. (laughs) And he famously wanted Bob Zemeckis to change the title to... Spaceman from Pluto, Yeah, despite I, the film having nothing to do with Spaceman or Pluto. Well,
0: I just saw on Twitter, <laughs> somebody was sending around a copy of the notes, yeah. including saying like, one, uh, as discussed, change the name to Spaceman to Pluto. As discussed. Two, in, in such and such a scene, Marty's Marty's mother should say, you look like a Spaceman from Pluto. Three, in this later scene, <laughs> somebody else should be re- reading a book. Sid. Oh, Sid. And then he even says to the end, like, you see where I'm going with this. Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> he had a certain flair and a style for it. However,
0: you cannot advocate that Back to the Future should have been called Spaceman from Pluto. I'm sorry, Sid. <laughs> to read that memo, it made sense, his reasoning, but it definitely does not work. Um, although, interestingly, they did work together again, although they never spoke to each other. Yeah. So, Sid Seinberg, when he was
1: still the still the president of Universal, made uh, 12, Twelve Monkeys, Monkeys, which was a big hit. So, it just goes to show you, everyone has their morals in Hollywood until business. there's some more money on the line. Yeah.
0: Everybody can be very diplomatic about it. Frank Price was saying, he's like, you know, and I watched the movie and I could tell this is not for everyone, <laughs> which I thought was, <laughs> yes, was it,
1: I think that's right. Was it Frank Price or was it Seinberg who said, well- looks like we got the movie of the year on our hands and Gilliam and Arnon took that in two different ways.
0: Yeah, I think I think it was somebody from the marketing department and the it quote It must have been was, Antonowski. And, maybe it was, and it was saying like, we have to market this as like the movie of the decade. Yeah, the movie of the decade. <laughs> Arnon, I remember
1: him oh, saying Arnon's like- like, I, don't, I think everything is half full. You say, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm
0: always an optimist. You did it. You made the movie of the decade. But Terry Gilliam said like, I could tell we have no, no idea, idea what, what to, to do, do with
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, they enter in this battle, they take the film away from Terry Gilliam, and then Terry Gilliam sort of brilliantly and churlishly begins a campaign to show the film in the United States when he has no right to do so. So the first thing that he does is they have a a film screening set up at USC film school. And they're all set to go. He's going to show the movie, and the projectionist of all people, I think, is the guy that pulls the plug because all the film schools are basically beholden to all the studios. And he's like, "We can't show this. Like, this is a risk we can't take." So they're
0: on the phone with their lawyers, back and forth. As they're going back and forth with the lawyers, Terry Gilliam's talking to the class and telling them, "Like, this is what Hollywood is like. Be ready for this." And then he goes to the back room to make a phone phone call. call, Yeah, comes back in and tells them about the phone call he just made.
1: Turns out, you know, he's allowed to show a clip. So then they have another screening set up and he conspires with someone where the guy's like, okay, my clip is, happens to be the entire running length of the film.
0: (laughs) Roughly. Roughly.
1: (laughs) Anyway, then they end up courting uh, the LA film critics. And in the book, uh, it gets more into this, which I think is an interesting thing. If you're really interested in film critics and the the internecine (laughs) wars that they have, but basically the LA film critics, obviously getting wind of the story awarded the movie all of these awards. But then the East Coast film critics were not having it. A lot of them felt like the L.A. film critics stepped into something they really should have stayed out of. Anyway, the whole thing culminated. Gilliam took out a famous ad in Variety, which was white type with a funereal black border. And the ad simply said, Sid Sheinberg, when will you release my film Brazil? Terry Gilliam. In Hollywood, you just don't do that. You don't publicly embarrass the head of a studio in Variety. And Terry Gilliam tells a story of like, yeah, it cost me $1,500 or whatever, and I forgot about it. And of course, in those days, you, put the, you, know, you place the ad, and then like a week later, it shows up. You've yeah. forgotten all about it. And all of a sudden, it was this huge deal and really damaged him for quite a while. And Sid Scheinberg never spoke to him again, up through the time they made 12 Monkeys together. <laughs> There's a whole, whole story there, which culminated also in the So Bad It's Good 94-minute Love Conquers All cut which appears on the the Criterion disc. You can watch the totally hacked together 94-minute Love Conquers All cut, which was the studio's version of what would have been a commercially appealing film, which, of course, it's not. Yeah. So a classic, both for the film, because the film, I think, will stand the test of time and be the brilliant piece of cinema that it is, and it's also one of the great Hollywood showdowns between director and studio with tons of lessons and information for everybody. In so, this business of show. In the business of show. Yeah. Everything. Everything is at the height of the medium at its time. And it's all in service of a completely anti-commercial, anti-corporate message that was way ahead of its time. And like you said, we're living in it right now. And we're living in it right now. If you haven't seen Brazil, do yourself a favor, get the Criterion DVD. Um, You can actually watch Terry Gilliam's preferred cut on Amazon Prime, but you won't be able to watch all of the other interesting cuts. I guess you have to be the kind of freak that we would be to spend time (laughs) watching multiple cuts of a movie that is already two hours and 23 minutes long. Right. Uh, the Battle for Brazil is on YouTube. That's a great documentary about the fight. And there's also a great uh, thing on YouTube, which you can find, which is The Making of Brazil. And that's the one that has a bunch of very clever interviews with some of the cast members. And Michael Palin is doing hilarious business throughout the whole thing. So there you have it, Brazil. Yeah, two thumbs up. Um, all right, Chris, are you ready for Headlines? Yes. Headlines. Bring him on. A good one for you. Our first headline today, a man who was trapped in the snow for five days told police he survived on taco
0: sauce. Taco Bell fire sauce saves lives. Oh God. But that must've been hell on the stomach. Fire, so- <laughs> fire sauce on an empty stomach.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he I mean, survived. He, survived, I suppose. he had yeah. packets that he found in his car. I can't imagine there's a lot of nutritious value.
0: <laughs> Although, do you remember Ronald Reagan famously wanted uh, ketchup to be classified as a vegetable? Taco oh,
1: Bell please. Firesoft saves lives, Chris. That's the takeaway. Okay. If they're not running that as an ad. Uh, this is one of my favorite. I was actually thinking we should change the segment headlines into a new segment called Peak 2019. But I think that maybe that's a separate segment, so we'll worry about that, that could later. Be, oh God, not prepared for that. We're not going to
0: have time for any movies
1: in all the segments. You're familiar with the distracted boyfriend meme? Yes. Okay. Apparently, in real life, Jack Black created a real life distracted boyfriend meme while walking the streets of Los Angeles. Oh yeah. <laughs> he walks by a couple, and it's actually like the photo when they freeze it, where the guy turns <laughs> around because he spots Jack Black. And if you go right here, you'll see literally a real life distracted. That's great. That's peak 2019. Again, shut it all down. Another a visual story on an auditory medium. You real, guys, you'll love it. You just you'll you love must it. have a Google machine. Crypt, crypt, un, you know, people yeah, finding crypt People finding shit in crypts that they should leave alone. This one was discovered last October by archaeologists working in a tomb of a noble family in the Henan province of central China. Dates back two thousand years. They found a yellowish liquid in a bronze pot. It's an elixir of immortality. You sure? It's yellow. It exhibits a very strong alcohol-like smell. Yeah, yeah. At first, they thought Don't it was- Don't drink. <laughs> first, they thought it was wine. But in an update to the discovery, further lab work has shown that the substance isn't wine at all. Its main ingredients- Is urine. Please be urine. It's <laughs> primarily comprised of potassium nitrate. Ah, and alanite the main ingredients of a life-enriching elixir documented in ancient Taoist texts. Oh, wow.
0: And so, it hadn't like evaporated, huh? Um, oh, I, guess I served down. you some, so what? we'll find out. <laughs> oh, that's what that is? That's what we were
1: drinking. And um, we will see if you become immortal <laughs> yeah. or die. Just check in every now and again. Nope, still kicking. My final one. Chris, this is for you, because I know you're an actor. Yes. And I know that you have, you're have you still out there in the game, still actively go on auditions. You participate in readings and developing new work, writing your own work. Well, there's a new musical coming to Broadway in 2020. Okay. And I think you have a shot at this. Do you abs what it takes to audition for Broadway-bound Magic Mike the Musical?
0: I think I do. Your voice just went up an octave. That would imply yeah, that you do not have any abs worth note. False modesty. That's what oh, it is. Okay. That's the only thing false about that is the false modesty.
1: You only have to do six things. Send an email to casting at magicmikebroadway.com. Considered done. Here's a full list of what you have to include in the email. Number one, self-taped video audition via unlisted YouTube link or Vimeo. No problem. Number two, a brief pop rock song, not longer than one minute, that shows off your range with Piano accompaniment. No problem. Number three, a brief contemporary or hip-hop dance clip. No longer than two minutes that shows off your athleticism, technique, and any special skills, such as gymnastics or tumbling, etc. Please do not send any tapes that include nudity. No. Current headshot and resume that includes your height and weight. Okay. Your current location. <laughs> well, wait. <laughs> is that the
0: location when I'm I, sending I it or when they're receiving it? Your current location. Cell phone number, email address, and date of birth. I guess to check. Are you at your current? Lo- are you at the location you gave us?
1: All tapes will be reviewed by the casting team, and you will be contacted promptly if any additional information or audition material is needed. Great. This is a shot of the some of the guys. I guess I, I could see you in here. I <laughs> if the photos were like nipple line up, you know. So I think you should go for it. Uh, why not? Can what you get this you giant list them? of materials together? That's nothing. now you've told me before. You're not a triple threat, uh, which in the business we refer to as someone who can act, sing, and dance. Right.
0: Right. You can act. Yo, yes, you cannot sing. Eh, I don't know. It depends who you ask. And you cannot dance. (laughs) You want to hear the other thing that I heard about these Magic Mike auditions? There's a rehearsal studio where they were doing, I guess, some of these auditions, Mm -hmm. and somebody took a shit on the floor of a changing room. You mean like as a commentary on the process? No, I think to like let off some nerves, or I think more to be like, uh, look good, get their abs, just get everything out of there. Come on.
1: Someone told you that story? Yeah. That's horrifying. Is that the kind of story that you guys pass around in the theater circle?
0: Yes. Are you, if you, if you walked out and somebody was taking a dump on the floor, are you telling me you wouldn't tell people about it? I just can't imagine that that would ever occur.
1: I mean, television is a civilized business, Chris. <laughs> we're not animals here, okay? We don't, we're not desperate the way- Actors to be in Magic Mike. This is, this is something only an actor would do, to think that by taking a shit- they were going to somehow have more definition in their abs. It doesn't work that way, actors, okay? I'm not sure if they know Try how, to, like, body fat works. Or who, or maybe
0: they thought they'd, you know, just be lighter for the dance call. I don't know. I wasn't, That's wasn't not a true me, story, if Chris. If that's what you're trying to imply.
1: That's not a true story. All right. I don't know who told you that. I'm not
0: going to say. Well, I see. You won't even name names. No, <laughs> forgive me, but I thought that was heroic. During the 1950s, those who would not name names, unlike those kids,
1: Ooh, whoa. People who did. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You were about to go there. I was. It's still raw. You were the Hollywood 10. The Hollywood 10, yeah. Another appearance of Bertold Brecht mm. in this podcast. Socialists never made any good movies. Reds is a pretty good
2: movie.
0: I mean, You ever yeah. see Reds? No, I haven't not. seen Reds. Two hours, 22 minutes. That's good. That's, that's the, you should uh, see Reds. That's good. I would like to see it. It's a good movie. Warren to. Beatty is great. I love Warren Beatty. You do? So, yeah. He was in, like, my favorite movie of all We about never that. released our in Ishtar, Ishtar. did we? Haven't yet. You know, uh, <laughs> I didn't tell you because I thought you'd yell at me. You know, I went to another screening at Film Forum. Of Ishtar? Yeah. When? How, two weeks ago, something like that. Packed. It was People not People were so packed. excited. Packed. People love it. Everybody was wait, so friendly wait, wait, because everybody wait, wait, was, wait, like, wait, wait. the few, the proud. Why like, we was get this it. movie screened? Part of, so Film Forum had the far out in the 70s. Okay festival of comedy in the 70s. Within that, they had a sort of- Why was this film included in a comedy category? Within that, they had a mini thing of Elaine May. Oh oh yeah, I saw that, that. yeah. And this was screened as part of that. Also- Oh, and I also saw you went and saw the one with Walter Matthau. Well, that was not part of that. That I watched on video. That's a good movie. I was going to say, on your recommendation, I loved it. Very very good, very well done. At the screening, which played like gangbusters and everybody was very like friends. I wish I could all seen a collection of your people. Except at the end- Two women in their late sixties, early seventies, got into a fight over the movie. So one lady was sitting <laughs> and she wanted to watch all the credits because yeah. she has. Friends were they together? They, wrote, they were together. At first, I thought they were, but the other lady she wanted, wanted to get leave. up and go. And
1: it's in the film forum for people that don't know. It's a little cramped. It's it's, it's a, a tight environment. You have to. You can't get. You can't walk. The person next to you has to get up for you to get out of the row.
0: And so they started like
1: jostling and then hitting each other. Now I think part of it was complicated. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now without hearing anything else. I am team woman who didn't want to stick around for the credits. Why do you need to stay for the end credits of Ishtar?
0: Well, the woman who wanted to stay was like, I have friends who are part of it. Listen, I'm with you. Oh, so she, she wants should've... to see the name of like yeah. catering and craft services helper on screen? I don't know. That. Okay. But the fact that she could have stood up, got out of the row and still yes. seen the screen. But what was really funny was... Alternately, you know, and was I was sitting in the fault? row behind them. Both of them at different points were like, "Isn't she crazy?" To what's you, this? yeah, to me, and to like the other people and around. You probably stayed out we of it, friends. didn't you? Yeah. What was it going to do? Say,
1: frankly, the fact that you're even here watching this movie makes both of you crazy. That would have been a good line, except it wouldn't have been true. And I would have said, "And you? You're going to stick around because you want to see your friend's name on the end credits of this turgid piece of crap." It's so fucking funny, and it plays it is not
0: so fucking funny. So well. Demonstrably not funny. It was demonstrated at the Film Forum, how well it plays. A couple years ago, there was a screening at BAM that I wasn't able to make. Or did uh, she present with, it? That she presented uh, oh. with some friends of mine went to. Well,
1: Why don't we let the people speak? I mean, if they want to see the Ishtar episode, or listen to it, <laughs> or whatever you do with a podcast. <laughs> yeah, a, how does this work? <laughs> the well, Battle of Ishtar. we we'll check
0: with the viewer mail. All right, Chris, <laughs> do you have a clever ending, a clever out? Uh, yes, I do, actually. No Desire for Rants or Raves? Oh. We already went so long. It's already I was I say that. What do you have for us as an end? Well, we and we and certainly after sitting through this deep, variegated discussion, you know how Brazil turned out. But in a different timeline, where Sid Sheinberg got his way, Terry Gilliam might have looked back on the experience, maybe at the premiere of his having directed The Notebook 2, and thought,
2: "I was cured, all right."